Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. I will tell you, though, that we will not read our text until the end of the sermon. So, if you're wondering when we'll get to it, we will at the end of the sermon. This is our third Sunday, the third Sunday of this year, but the third Sunday in looking at the matter of ambition. What we've been doing, however, for the past two weeks is establishing a background, a foundation for understanding ambition. That is the issue of calling. What we have seen thus far is that calling is a certain kind of life ordained and imposed on human beings by God for the common good. We've also seen that everyone has a calling. That may strike some people as strange because they think, well, you know, pastors or people who do heroic things have callings and everyone else just has a job. No, everybody has a calling and everyone must choose a calling. We looked at that last week. Today, I would add briefly before moving on that once one has chosen a calling, everyone must enter into that calling. One must enter into the calling that he or she has chosen. That is, it is not enough to say, oh, I know this, this is what God is calling me to do. This is what I have chosen to do. And then not do anything. That simply is not acceptable. One must enter into that calling. And then, once you have entered into the calling, you must do the works of that calling. And what works are those? Well, no matter what your calling is, there are at least uh, well, three things, three qualities that should mark your actions. First of all, the works of one's calling must be the proper works of one's calling. I mentioned this last week that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, make it your ambition, it's one of the two places where ambition is used positively, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. The phrase, mind your own business, strikes us as rather, uh, well, seems rather sharp. But that's because in the modern sense it means being nosy. You know, don't be nosy, mind your own business. But this is not how Paul means it. What he means is you need to see what it is that God has called you to do and then you are to look into that. That is what God has called you to do. You are to mind your calling, the thing that God has called you to do. And this is seen in the fact that he immediately speaks of work and your daily life. So Paul is telling the Thessalonians and us that it is our responsibility to know what our duties are, the duties of our callings are, and then to do those duties. We are given specific callings for a reason. The reason is, this is how, this is where we are to serve God. In the past, when I've talked about this, when I've talked about the matter of calling and, and knowing what your proper duties are, I have tended to focus on the fact that you need to, in the modern sense, mind your own business. That is, don't say, oh, so-and-so has this calling, I wonder what his or her duties are in that calling. Um, I don't think that that is as much a problem as we need to know what are the duties of my particular calling. I think that that's 
That's key. And I think it's something that many Christians have not thought about. If God, in fact, has given us a calling, he's given us gifts and inclinations and the advice of others to say, this is what we think you should do, then I think we should sit down and say, okay, if this is my calling, what are the appropriate duties of that calling? Rather than simply going in and and, doing your time card or whatever, we need to think, what are the duties of my calling? I think that would answer a lot of questions for many of us as we struggle in the area of calling. The second quality of our work is that the works of our callings must be profitable. Not primarily to us as the doer, but it's supposed to be for the common good. What we do as we walk in our callings must be of some benefit to someone. Otherwise, why did God put us in that calling? One of the ways that we can determine what the duties of our callings are is to ask ourselves, what is beneficial? What is profitable? Not in terms of making money, but what helps people? What will help the common good? And then thirdly, the the works of our callings must be necessary. Now, it may be that you have little or no choice. You work for somebody, you have a boss, a supervisor, an employer, and they tell you what you must do. But when you have a choice... You should do those things that are more necessary. You should decide, okay, these are, let's say, 20 things I need to do. Which are the priority? Which are more important? What are the things I need to do first? Otherwise, if we're not careful, our days become filled with busy work. We think, well, I'm doing a lot, but in fact, we're not doing the things that are necessary, the things that are or should be a priority. In this, I think it might be helpful to think of the family as uh, an example in terms of application. One who has the calling of husband and father has the duty of providing for his family. And this is an important duty. Paul, in fact, told Timothy that a man who fails to provide for his family has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So to provide for one's family is, in fact, important. But there is something even more important than providing for his family. And the more necessary and important duty is that he love his family. That the husband love his wife as Christ loved the church. And that the man love his children as the heavenly father loves his children. It is not enough to provide or to protect one's family. The man must love. And so as a husband or a father and you say, okay, this is what God has called me to do. These are my duties. You need to ask yourself What are the priorities? What is more important? And I'm sure you are all familiar with men who have spent their lives earning money to provide a good living for their family, but have not spent any time with their family. And I'm always, I don't always, but it strikes me as strange when a man reaches his almost retirement age and then he decides he's going to retire and he says, so I can spend more time with my family. And I'm thinking, at that point, your family's gone. I mean, if you didn't spend time in the early years. um, So there are things that are more important than earning a living. Though, Paul says, you must provide for your family. Then another principle we see is that once we have realized what our calling is, we've chosen a calling, we've entered the calling, we are to continue in our callings. Someone might say, well, Damon, that's that's obvious. Why do you even mention it? Um, And you'd be right that this seems very obvious. 
But I think oftentimes when one enters in a calling, after a period of time, we tend to forget that it is a calling and it simply becomes a job. We forget that our calling comes from God. The initial excitement wears off and now the work becomes toil and drudgery. Or a word that I have coined, uh, trudgery. As we just sort of go through life and we forget that, no, this is what God has called me to do. This happens in part because work is a two-edged sword. On the one hand, it is blessed. When we work, we reflect the one who made us. God is at work. He is the creator. We are his creatures made in his image. And when we work, we are reflecting him. And there is a certain sense of satisfaction. A job well done. On the other hand, there is the curse. God told Adam, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. As a result, even the most enjoyable task or work, let's say like being a parent, has a downside and a dark side to it. And if we're not careful, we will lose sight of the calling that we have from God. We need to remember that life is a marathon. And when it comes to the matter of calling, we are to continue in our callings. So, let's just sort of write this somewhere in the back of our mind that we are to continue in what God has called us to do. This in the light of hindrances and obstacles that may come our way, or if you wish, trudgery. Perhaps the greatest hindrance is covetousness. And by this, I don't mean coveting what other people have. That's usually what people think of, and certainly the Tenth Commandment, we're not to covet what our neighbor has. And so this may be part of it. But rather, where God has given us a calling for the common good, we sort of resent that and we want our calling to be for my good. I want it to be about other people. I want it to be about me. People would say, I want it for my good and my good alone. The result is what we see around us. Those in society who have been given callings by God, but they don't recognize it, and they completely devote their energies to the gathering of wealth and riches, pleasure, pleasures, or position, or positions. These are what Jesus called in the parable of the sower, the cares of this world. Paul wrote to Timothy about this. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You see, we have been given a calling, and by God's grace in that calling we earn a living. But perhaps we are not content with that. We want more. We covet. We don't want it for the common good. We want it for ourselves. And so rather than serving God by serving the common good, we seek to serve ourselves. We pursue money as the end in itself. I remember someone saying that, you know, back in the 19th century, if you were to ask somebody, so what, what do you do? What do you make? And they would say, well, I make furniture or I make this. Today, if you were to ask somebody, what do you make? What would they say? 40,000, 50,000. So it's money. It's, it's not the actual work itself that comes to define people. And the result may be, as Paul told Timothy, ruin and destruction. 
Think of Judas Iscariot. He was one of the twelve disciples. He preached when sent out. He probably performed miracles and exorcisms because the disciples did. And if he had not been able to do so, I think he would have been seen for a fraud. And yet he loved money so much that he turned his back on the calling of being a follower of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And did it benefit him? Not at all. He returned it. He committed suicide. Ruin and destruction. If we lose or never have a sense of calling, the common good is replaced by a drive to accumulate things. Money and what it can buy. We have to be on our guard because we live in a time when there are those in the church who call themselves Christians, who say that they are followers of Jesus. They have rationalized their covetousness. That is, that their callings are so that they can make a lot of money. The gospel has been redefined. Even what it means to be blessed or what blessings are are seen primarily in material terms. Read through the Old Testament and the New Testament you will see that this is rarely, if ever, the case. You will find that being blessed is rarely seen in terms of material things. David wrote in Psalm 32, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then if you will listen, I know it's familiar to you, but I I want you to have a sense of this. When Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount, What did he say about being blessed? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Not a word about financial prosperity. There are those who teach that we should seek abundance from God. And that God would not give it to us, in fact, if it were wrong. A digression here, but I think important. William Perkins, 500 years ago, when he wrote his treatise on vocation, dealt with the issue of covetousness and of the pursuit of wealth. He gave us four things to consider. First of all, he said, when God gives abundance to the covetous, he cannot be blamed. It was sought after by the covetous. Although I hesitate to say, be careful what you pray for, God will give you it. Um, I think if there is something you give your life to, you may in fact find that you will get it. That is not what God intends. Secondly, sometimes when God gives abundance to those who seek it, with the abundance comes a plague. We see this with Israel in the wilderness. Therefore, to Perkins, abundance can be a sign of God's wrath because God gives you what you want. Thirdly, Regarding the promises found in Scripture about riches, these promises are not for everyone. Consider what we find in Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter on faith. Toward the end of the chapter, 
They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. Many of our brothers and sisters have died penniless, destitute. Has God ignored them? I don't think so. And secondly, consider that the riches of God are not primarily financial. When we think of God's riches, that the Lord is our portion, are we thinking money? Well, the question would come back immediately, well, what about Abraham? What about Jacob? What about Solomon? These were incredibly wealthy men. And I would answer that they were, not, they were made rich by God. They did not seek riches in and of themselves. In fact, look at the prayer that Solomon prayed. And when God answers him, God says, You did not ask for wealth, but I will give it to you. He did not seek it, but it was given to him. And then lastly, Perkins says that those who want to serve the common good by seeking abundance, that is, if God gives me a lot, I will be able to share with a lot of people. Remember that we are to stay within the limits of our calling. We saw this last week. So Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8 about helping those in need. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. So we shouldn't say, if I had X amount of money, I would give this to so-and-so. If we don't have that amount of money, it's ridiculous, it's foolish for us to talk about that. We should say, this is what God has given me, and therefore I need to consider what are my duties and my calling with regard to what God has given me. In the church, I think, in order to justify if you wish to almost baptize covetousness, the church has neglected the matter of calling. And the church is seen as running after money just like everybody else. I've mentioned this a number of times, but Bob Hope used to tell the old joke that he was once on a plane that was going down, it was going to crash, and somebody said, do something religious, do something spiritual. He said, so I took an offering. You know, that the church has been so closely aligned with money that we have little or anything to say about covetousness in terms of judging it. So how do we fight this monster, covetousness? Well, the answer is contentment. To find contentment. And then it would say, well, great. Well, how do you get contentment? I would begin by saying it's not automatic, it's not natural, it takes a long time. It must be worked at. And a good place to start when it comes to contentment is to have a sense of calling. This is what God has called me to do. This is God's purpose for my life in this world. Many people are discontent because they have no sense of calling. They are restless because they don't know this is where God wants me. This is what God wants me to do. At least three things will help us as we begin to look at contentment. First of all, we need to recall, we need to remember the providence of God in our lives, thinking of what God has done for us in the past. It's how easily we forget what God has done. We become discontent where we are right now because we forget what God has done in the past. When Job lost everything, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. 
This is not stoicism. This is remembering. This is what God has done. Secondly, we must resolve that God is the most important thing to us in our lives. He is our portion, the most important aspect of our existence. In Lamentations 3, some of these words may sound familiar from a hymn, we read, Because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. I said to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. We sing in the hymn beneath the cross of Jesus the following words, content to let the world go by, to know no gain nor loss. But do we mean that? Is the Lord our portion? Are we discontent? And thirdly, we must seek to resolve to seek only what is necessary and sufficient. Jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread, what we need each day to eat. Well, how do we know what is sufficient? Well, it certainly it differs from person to person, from family to family. And God has not set any particular standard. But I think it is helpful if we think in terms of necessity, not want. I've mentioned this before, but among many of the wonderful things and beneficial things I have learned from my wife is that oftentimes when I say we need such and such, actually what I'm saying is I want such and such. We don't need it. I've put it in the category of necessity, but it is in fact in the category of want. It is amazing if you think about it, how little we really do need. And even more amazing is how God provides what we need and so much more. Okay, at this point, some of you may be wondering if we're ever going to get to the matter of ambition. I think we are there now. In covetousness and contentment, we find part of the ambivalence we have with regard to ambition. If you look up in Merriam-Webster's dictionary regarding ambition, it is an, an ardent desire for rank, fame, or power. If this is how we define ambition, then covetousness is far more dynamic and far, it makes much more sense to be driven by covetousness than it does by contentment. Both ambition and covetousness seem to have a dynamic, a certain drive to them, whereas contentment would seem to have no drive at all. I'm content with what I have. In other words, ambition and covetousness are seen as active, and contentment would seem to be passive. So, if you had two categories up here, this is covetousness over, over here, and this is contentment over here, and you're trying to figure out where to put ambition, I think more often than not, we would put ambition in the category of covetousness. But we know that coveting is wrong. It is a sin. It, is a t you know, it violates the Tenth Commandment. So what are we to do about ambition? Some would conclude that ambition is therefore a sin. It is wrong. It is contrary to contentment. We are to be content with what God has given us. But I told you at the beginning of the series, I have taken as a double premise that God made us to be ambitious. And that part of being made in the image of God is to be ambitious. So how does this work? How do we make sense of this? Well, first of all, calling is crucial. Among the texts that we have looked at 
in this series. We've looked at 1 Corinthians 7. Um, let me read it to you quickly. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 to 24. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. I think perhaps we could stop there because Paul is quite clear. This is what calling is. This is the place God has assigned you to. And then we saw last week that Paul wrote in Romans 15. He's writing to the Christians in Rome because he plans to stop by. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. The first passage would seem to be ambivalent about uh, ambition because, you know, Paul says, you know, this is where God has put you. If you're a slave, you're a slave. If you're free, you're free. If you're a Jew, you're a Jew. If you're a Gentile, you're a Gentile. That's just the way it is. So that seems to be contentment passive. Whereas when Paul says, it's my ambition, I don't want to preach where somebody else has preached, that sort of comes more over to what we think of as ambition. Um, Paul made a choice. I'm only going to preach where no one else has preached. But in both passages, there is a foundation that is crucial, and it is the matter of calling. In the Corinthian passage, it's obvious. It's very obvious, and we spent time looking at it two weeks ago. But what about Romans 15:20, the passage where Paul speaks of, I want to preach where no one else has preached. We have to look back at Paul's story in which he persecuted the church until confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus. Three times in the book of Acts, this story is told. Now, I've, I've mentioned this to you before, and I would repeat it again. Whenever you find something repeated in Scripture, you should pay attention. You should pay attention to everything in Scripture. But when something is repeated, the author's trying to get your attention. Why do we need to be told three different times about how Paul became a Christian? Because in each story, it is very clear that he had a calling. He was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. It's one of the reasons why Luke wrote the book of Acts, to show that the gospel coming to the Gentiles was not some accident. It wasn't sort of this, this overflowing of fervor among the Jews, and it just sort of spilled out to the Gentiles. This was God's plan all along. And he had a man named Paul, and he called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. In the first case, in Acts 9, the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then in Acts 22, when Paul gives his defense before the mob that wants to tear him limb from limb, then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And finally, in Acts 26, when he is giving his defense to King Agrippa. God said, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So we have a man who definitely has a calling from God to take the gospel to the Gentiles. By the way, in Galatians chapter 2, we saw this when Paul goes up to Jerusalem 
they, the apostles in Jerusalem, saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. In other words, this is my calling. Yet, in Romans 15, we see ambition. Paul says, this is what God has called me to do, but I have a plan, I have a strategy, I only want to preach where no one else has preached before. And that was his strategy, but we see that when Paul gets arrested in Jerusalem, the strategy is, is scrapped. God has something else in mind for Paul. But Paul had ambition, a drive within his calling. I think we should as well. What is ambition? Well, in a recent book that's come out called Rescuing Ambition, Dave Harvey defines it as the instinctual motivation to aspire to things, to make something happen, to have an impact, to count for something in life. I like the definition, except I would, I would change instinctual to God-given. It is God-given motivation. This is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And in laying a framework for what the Bible says about ambition, I would suggest that we follow a paradigm that we have done many times before. We will examine ambition in the weeks to come in light of creation, fall, and redemption. We've done this in other things, but take, for example, marriage. What was marriage like when God created Adam and Eve, when they were in the garden and they were without sin? What has happened to marriage because of sin? And now that we are God's people, what is redeemed marriage supposed to be like? Why is a Christian family, a Christian marriage, to be different from all other marriages? So what we need to look at is what was ambition like in creation when God first made the world? What God intended in a perfect world? What God intended for those made in his image? And then what happened to ambition as a result of the fall? When Adam and Eve rebelled against the Creator and his intents against their calling, if you wish. When the Creator cast them from his presence, and when the human race sought to live on its own apart from the Creator, that is, with no sense of calling. And then, what is ambition in a world that is being redeemed? When Jesus came into the world, when Jesus showed us what it means to be human, when those who follow Jesus seek to live as God intends. We've seen in other studies, when we've used this paradigm, that a lot of people go wrong when they look at something only in the light of the fall. Okay, this is what it is. It's completely messed up and we want to fix it. And this is what we want to fix it up to be. Well, there's a problem there. Because you need to ask yourself, before it was messed up, what did it look like? What did God first intend? And uh, we saw this in the series on wealth, that there are many Christians who say the world is messed up when it comes to money and we're going to fix it. But what they end up with is oftentimes a Marxist ideology. They don't go back to Eden to see what did God think about wealth even in the beginning in creation. So it is important for us to see what did God intend for ambition before sin came into the world. Okay, we know what ambition is like now. But now that we are Christians, what should Christian ambition look like? Briefly, because this will be the foundation for what we're going to look at in the weeks to come. When God made man in his image, he gave them, among other things, 
calling, and we've seen this. We're given the specifics in Genesis 1 and 2. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then in chapter 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. But we need to ask ourselves, to what end? What purpose was there? Because we've defined calling as to serve the common good. It was just Adam, and then later Eve. I mean, what is the common good? We're not told directly what the purpose of calling is, but I think it is there. Adam was given a calling in order to bring glory to God. We see this in the rebellion. They sought their own glory rather than God's glory, and we see it in Jesus. So God gave Adam a calling, and secondly, he gave him ambition. Now, we are not told this directly, and some would challenge me on this. We can talk about it. But I would ask you, what would drive, what would motivate Adam to obey his calling? Imagine you create two human beings and then you say to them, we want you to subdue the earth. That's a huge undertaking. Uh, I'm going to keep you here in the garden for a while while you learn and then I want you to go out. What would motivate them? What would drive them to say, okay, we've learned enough, now we need to go out and do what we've been called to do? I would say ambition. Ambition, a drive to bring glory to God. So that's creation. Then in the fall, because of misdirected ambition, the desire for one's own glory, the human race has fallen into ruin. The serpent told Eve, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. At least two things happened here. Adam and Eve lost their sense of calling, and their sense of ambition became corrupted. As a result, the world is a broken place. And it is into this world that you and I were born. And so we come to view ambition as um, those who possess the drive to disregard God and his purposes, the desire to live independent of God, the goal of choosing our own God or God's. And sadly, our view of ambition is quite twisted. What about redeemed ambition? It is in Jesus that we come to see ambition as God intended originally. We find this in an intriguing passage, which is our text today. You've been patient enough. There in John chapter 12, verses 23 through 28. If you look at it, John 12 23 through 28. Jesus replied, The hour has come from the Son of Man for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. 
My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very hour that I came, for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven, came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Here I am convinced we see ambition as God intended. We see it in Jesus. We see it in what Jesus wants to see in his disciples. Those who are willing to live, lose their life. Those who love their life, in fact, are seeking their own ambition versus those who lose their life for the sake of the gospel have a true sense of ambition. By the way, if you keep reading in this chapter, you see twisted or fallen ambition in verses 42 and 43. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him, that is Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved praise from men more than praise from God. There is false ambition versus true ambition. Praise from God, that's nice, but don't really hear that. Praise from man, that's very immediate. And that's what drives much of fallen ambition. The Lord willing, we will look at ambition in these three realms in more detail in the weeks to come. And by God's grace, we will come to have a proper understanding of ambition. I said a few moments ago that the world is a broken place. And it is. As Bob Dylan put it, everything is broken. It is a broken place, but it is not a God-forsaken place. God is still at work in his world. In us, through us, behind us, in front of us, all around us. God has a great deal he wishes to accomplish in part through us. This means that there is no room for Christians to have no ambition. God has given us calling. And what is going to motivate us, what is going to drive us to do our callings as we should, if it is not ambition? And yet ambition has been misunderstood. Either it has been embraced in its twisted forms, or it has been rejected. And I, I could be wrong about this, this is just my opinion here at the end of the sermon. I see a split among Christians that those who were raised in the church tend to see ambition as wrong and perhaps even as sin. Those who became Christians as adults don't see it that way, but somehow they have to adjust, and so they split their lives into the sacred and to the secular. And so, yes, they are rejoicing, they praise God that they have been saved and they're going to heaven, they are God's people. But that's on Sundays and, and perhaps at night before they go to bed or in the morning when they wake up. But the rest of the time, they live secular lives and they're driven by ambition, just like everybody else. Both those raised in the church and those who have come to the church in adult years, I think there's a real misunderstanding of ambition. And we need to go to scripture, and we will, to see what God intended originally when he made Adam and Eve. I don't know how much time we need to spend on how it's been corrupted, because I think we're very familiar with that. But then what is it that God wants from us now that we are his people, now that we live in his world?
What I hope we will learn in this series is how we are to understand ambition in terms of creation, fall, and redemption. How we are to have ambition. Above all, how we are to live as God's people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you care about every aspect of our lives. Far too much we think that you only want to save our souls and take us to heaven when this is all over. And in fact, you want us to enjoy this life, to rest in you here and now. as a foretaste, a foretaste of what is yet to come. That you do have a job for us to do. You've given each of us callings. You've given us the gifts to carry out those callings. You've given us brothers and sisters who can help us, who can advise us. And above all, you have given us ambition, which oftentimes we have turned our backs on or we have twisted to something almost unrecognizable. I pray that in the weeks to come as we go through this, we would see from your word what it is you intend for us, what it is you want from us, how it is that you want us to live lives with ambition, looking to the Lord Jesus as our example, that we will live lives to glorify you. We pray for Dan and Lonnie as they're leaving tomorrow night that you would keep them safe, safe from harm, in good health. Give them the strength and the energy they need to do the work that you've called them to do. Thank you for Dan's birthday and Janice as well and for their anniversary coming up next Sunday for the 38 years that you've given them together. Now as we leave this place, we ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us. May we have a sense of your presence by your spirit as we walk through the world in this coming week. We pray this in Jesus' name.